Welcome to the pulpit ministry of Christ Community Church in South Florida, aiming to make, mature, and multiply disciples by preaching and teaching God's Word based on the sufficiency of Scripture. And now, let's join Pastor Bernie Diaz for the message. need lots of help these days. We need safety. We need security. So I'm going to ask that you join me again in prayer. Father God, I am the first to admit among many that uh, the way we're doing church, the way we're gathering together right now is uncomfortable and inconvenient. However, the church has met in far more uncomfortable and inconvenient circumstances than this throughout history including how it began 2,000 years ago where they risked their very lives to do so. So Lord, may your humbling of us these days, and you are, and myself included, have an impact, Lord. May it be a, a time of, re of repentance, restoration, restoring that which is broken, Lord. And Father, we're celebrating Independence Day, United States birthday, 234 years yesterday, our nation declared its independence. As I was blogging this week, I pray that it will declare going forward its dependence on you in a new, fresh, necessary way. And Lord, even though we are going through a difficult time in our country, as other places are around the world with the pandemic, and here in addition, civil unrest in so many ways and division among people, I am glad, Lord, I am blessed and give you thanks that I am in the United States of America and that I am American and that we have still the freedom and the opportunity to come here today and worship and have a semblance fellowship and that we can still come together. I'm thankful to that, Lord. I'm thankful to you, and I ask for your help, for the Holy Spirit's help in being able to communicate what needs to be communicated today, which is really assurance, is safety, security, Lord. And I'm thankful for that. In Jesus' name, we all said. You know, I've, I've had experiences, some of you dads may have had, holding a little child in a pool when they're small and as you start to get into the deeper end they get more panicky. Have you had that? There was like the story of the dad holding a three-year-old in the middle of the pool and the dad just for fun started slowly going back from the shallow end to the deep end and he was going deeper and he would say deeper, deeper and the child started getting more panicky, freaked out, right? And he held even tighter to his dad who of course could easily touch the bottom. And uh, had the little boy been able to analyze this situation, he would have seen there was no reason to worry because the water's depth in any part of the pool was going to be over his head anyway. In fact, even in the shallow part, if he hadn't been held up, dad would have let him go. He would have drowned either way. He needed to depend on his dad no matter what. And at various points in our lives, we feel sometimes like we're getting out of our depth. We're getting too far in the deep end. Problems all over the place. We talked about it. A job is lost. Someone dies. COVID-19. 
civil unrest. So our temptation, if we're not careful, is to panic, lose control. Yet, like with the child in the pool, the truth is we've never been in control over the big things in life. Never. We've always been upheld by the grace of God, our Father. And that doesn't change. Okay? God is never out of His depth, even when we're going deeper and deeper and deeper. Amen? God is our safety. He's our life preserver. Literally. And I pray that something, if you've been with us for any length of time, you've been learning in our study of the book of 1 John, which today we finish. This first of three letters that the Apostle John wrote to the church. This particular one we've titled under the theme, Basic Christianity. Basic Christianity, because having the assurance of salvation, knowing the truth about Jesus Christ, about you, about your sin, about eternal life, makes up real, basic, fundamental Christianity. And I'm telling you today, I take safety, and I take security in that, and I hope you do. And in case you're not, you're not sure where you stand before God, and what your eternal future, your destiny is, John in this letter, he gives us a series of proof tests, doctrinal, practical, moral, that are going to let us know whether you're heaven-bound or not, whether you're a kingdom citizen, if you pass them, and you're going to get doubts about your future if you fail them. John's okay with that. In fact, the word know, that you would know, comes up 40 times in this letter, and three more times in the final closing passage of this book. So you know, we know, we know. As the Lord knows, it's challenging to live for Christ sold out as an abiding Christ-like loving follower. And you want to flash light in this world as best you can. And he wants us to know in the midst of all that, he wants us to know we're safe, we're sound, and we're secure. So as we close the book, these are what I'm calling today the facts of our new life. And we're going to look at them one by one. So... What is the first fact we have of the new life in Christ? First is, verse 18 tells us we're safe. We're safe. Look at it. We know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning, but he who is born of God protects him, and the evil one does not touch him. Now, some of you in the first phrase may have something that reads a little different in your Bible. It's a little scary. We know that everyone who has been born of God does not sin. Does not sin. Now, there are two assurances in this verse, in this sentence. We're safe, okay? One of the reasons why we know that is, we're, is because, number one, we've been born again by God. He's the giver of physical, spiritual new life. That's great. Number two, we have a new outlook on sin, if you know anything as a Christian, sin should no longer dominate you, have authority over you like it used to, because Jesus is the one who is born, begotten, come from God, and that keeps us safe. But, again, depending on your translation, you've just read, you can't sin. No one sins in Christ. Really? I mean, the New American Standard and the King James, they translate this first phrase of the verse essentially to be this. We know that no one who is born of God sins. Is that teaching Christian perfection on earth? Really? No sin at all? What does John mean by no sin? Well, 
my translation that we preach from, the English Standard Version or the ESV, clarifies the meaning of the original Greek a little bit better and some other modern translations do as well. For instance, the NIV says, anyone born of God does not continue to sin. And then the New Living Translation says, God's children do not make a practice of sinning. There's a big difference there, right? And those, those versions are very helpful to us grammatically and theologically. And I know some of you get into this and you want to know why this is what it is, the, the difference here. And that's because the verb form of sin in the Greek here, it's a present ongoing tense, meaning it gives the sense of practice or habit, ongoing sin. So you and I who are in Christ, we have assurance we know we're still going to sin, right? We just sin less. I used to call it the tug of war we talked about from the book of Romans in the seventh chapter. The New Testament makes clear that you don't stop sinning until Christ comes back and we're in glory. So all we have to do is read the New Testament, in fact, and you're going to see sins all over the place. The scripture lays it out in the lives of the apostles, the disciples, even Paul, the communities of the early church. That's why we have this letter from John. And so you know, John already addressed this in chapter 1. Skip over. And by the way, you're going to need to be scrolling and flipping over fast today because we're going to kind of take a jet tour in closing out the book of 1 John today. So be ready. 1 John 1.8 says, If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. Wow. Okay. And then verse 10 says, If we say we have not sinned, we make him, that's God, a liar, and his word is not in us. And remember, we talked about this. Why would we even go here? Because this was an issue in the early church when John was writing this letter. There were false teachers, antichrists, plural at the time, and they were saying that Christians didn't need to acknowledge, much less deal with their personal sin after they came to Christ because the physical body in their view didn't count for anything what you did with it it's all about your soul and the next life that matters anyway you know you got your fire insurance premium from hell paid up but John here in this book and in this text he's correcting their error about their attitude on sin sin does matter and our attitude about it and the degree in which we sin is evidence or proof of your salvation. So, the real born-again Christian, once and always saved, here it is, will not make sin the habitual practice of their life. You will sin. You just won't sin, shouldn't sin, a lot. In other words, we can say no to sin. We're no longer dominated by it. In fact, when you sin, you're so going to hate it that you're going to want to repent of it, fight the remaining sin in your flesh, exhibit the fruits of that repentance and the new life in Christ for the rest of your life here. Therefore, as we often say here, the Christian life on earth now is not about perfection, but what? I heard that through your masks. Very good. Our direction is living in such a way as to look and love more like Christ every day. We are, according to Paul, new creations, like 2 Corinthians 3 says, and you've got a veil right now in front of you, so you'll get the analogy, when Paul said, we, with unveiled face, 
beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. From this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. So that's an amazing statement that God the Holy Spirit is transforming us into Christ more and more as we remove the veil and we behold and look and focus on Jesus more and more. And the other thing we know from verse 18, the other assurance we get here is that the Son of God, Christ, protects us. He keeps us safe from what it says, the harm of the evil one. Satan, the devil, or our enemy. You know, Satan has more than one name or reference in the New Testament, the Bible, right? You know that. He's known as the deceiver. He's known as the slanderer. He's known as the murderer from the beginning. And this is just another title for him, the evil one. And all that refers to evil is that he's a really, really bad guy. Really bad fallen demon. He is wicked, vicious. All kinds of synonyms you can use, adjectives to describe him. Evil is present in the world big time. And we see here, just echoing chapter 2, that the whole system, the way of thinking in our world is often under the enemy's control. That's what verse 19 says. The devil is evil. And guess what? God allows him to broadcast evil. Permits him to do that. Spread it around. To infect the people on this planet in a way that's worse than this virus and this pandemic. Why? Because the consequence of being infected by evil, if unredeemed, is everlasting. Eternal. Right? So when we talk about our struggles to control our sin today, we have three big obstacles that we have to deal with. Note this. It's the world, the flesh, and the devil. They all work together against us. And they control unbelievers. But the good news here is this. The children of God, meaning believers, real born-again disciples or followers of Christ, we are not under control or the authority of the evil one but of the Holy Spirit, and so we're safe. The Spirit of God in Christ indwells you, okay? He moves you to righteousness, Christ-likeness. Like I said, if we follow Him, if we're abiding in Christ, meaning staying connected and close to Him, as this author likes to talk about, now, then, again, and again, and again. And this is what marks us out and why we're not citizens of this world, but of heaven, as Paul mentioned which is why we're safe and we're winners. Look at chapter 4 of this letter, verses 4 and 5. Verse 4, little children, you are from God and have what? Overcome them, them meaning false Christs, false spirits, teachers. For he who is greater in you, for he who is in you is greater than who is in the world. Okay? And then verse 5, just the beginning. They are from the world, therefore they speak from the world. The world listens to them. I need to tell you now for a moment what this verse does not say. Because you may have heard that and think, okay, there's these certain guarantees in place. I want you to be clear. I don't want you to misunderstand something. Although you have been born again, that does not mean your faith will not be tested. You're going to be persecuted for your faith. You're going to suffer trials and tribulations in this life. You're going to be constantly tempted to sin by the devil. I think you can all give a hearty amen to that. 
I mean, there's a necessary fact of life here that we have to accept. But I don't believe the Bible teaches, as we just heard in chapter 4, that he can possess you, but he can maybe oppress you. And the way he does that is with the world and the flesh. And by the way, as we saw last time, talking about assurance of salvation in the chapter, the Lord may even use the enemy to discipline his children with, what did we saw, talk about last time? Sins or the sin leading to death. So even though God will preserve you as a Christian for eternity, your soul is safe and secure, if you are in a certain sin, sin situation, there is a sin you could commit where God will take you out of here earlier than may have been intended otherwise. But in any case, the harm, and literally from the Greek language, snatching away that the Lord keeps us safe from is our souls, our spiritual condition. Once saved, we're always saved if we have been truly saved and we're safe ultimately in God's hands. Jesus said, no one, not even the devil, can snatch us out of the Lord's hands, being that we're children of God. He never leaves or forsakes us. God can't misplace his kids, you know? We went through a harrowing experience at a church picnic years ago, my wife and I, little David, who's not so little today, back then kind of scurried off somewhere, and we misplaced him. We freaked out, literally. We thought he was going to, you know, wind up with his face on a milk carton or something. And thankfully, he walked, was led out of a bathroom, came back to us. God's not like me. God's not like that. He's not that kind of father. He never says, where are they? Forgot them. Uh, I'm not paying attention to what's going on with them. Not at all. He's always there keeping us safe. Amen? Here's the second point. We're sound. Look at verse 19 of the text. We know that we are from God. And the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. That's an interesting way that John contrasted those two realities side by side in this sentence. And that verse kind of was off-putting a little bit to me when I first started looking at it. Yes, it says we're safe from the permanent harm of the enemy. Yes, we are sound in the sense we know, we can know we are children of God. But there's a warning here he puts in the second part. There's a warning we have to deal with which is the world in our flesh. Go back to chapter 2 in that very familiar passage. And in the world we live in today, you can't have a more relevant passage than this, which says, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. Who is the prince of the power of the air? Who is the evil one who controls the world? Satan. The world system, philosophy, worldview, way of thinking that is so much in our culture, it's not of God, it's of Satan. That sounds like a pretty heavy thing to say. Well, it's what John just said. That's what he wrote. All right? The world system is submissive to Satan. Lies in the power of the evil one. Now, that kind of language might scare you when you hear that. And thinking about that can strike at the heart of assurance, couldn't it? I mean, the proof of the Christian's assurance, though, remember, starts in the world, in the word, sorry, in the word, and that's the test of truth we've taken. But if you struggle with either the world, 
the flesh, the lust of the eyes, lust of the flesh, pride of life, the feeling of assurance of eternal security that you want is something you're not going to have. You're not going to sense it. You're not going to feel it. Why? Because those three things are tools of the enemy, his temptations to get you to sin, to fall, to disobey God and his commands, including in this letter the command of love. If you're in a habit of sinning, I'm going to tell you right now, don't be surprised that you're dealing with lack of assurance. If you are in a constant state of sin, you should struggle with assurance of salvation. You should want to examine yourselves, as Paul would say, to see if you're in the faith. You may just be backslidden. It's not that you've lost your salvation, but you need to examine yourself. There's a problem here. If you're not abiding in Christ, you're going to feel distant from Him. We said last time your prayers are going to hit the ceiling. And you're going to forget about what God's Word says when you suffer. A lot of Christians who are struggling with assurance, when they suffer, they don't know what to do with it. Or they'll blame God. Let me have you turn over to Romans chapter 5 or just make a note of it there. Romans 5 verses 3 to 5. Great assurance about, great text about assurance you wouldn't think of immediately. But Paul says this, note this. We rejoice in our sufferings knowing that suffering produces endurance or patience or perseverance. Verse 4, and endurance produces character and character produces hope and hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who's been given to us. That's assurance. Suffering is allowed, permitted, and orchestrated often by God for several reasons. You just saw three of them in Romans 5. And there's assurance. You can have assurance here. Now, you might go through all this and think, you know, I'm hurting, I'm confused. Really? Is God sovereign over everything? Right? He is God. But then we have this verse, well, who's really in control of the world? Verse 19 says, the enemy. No. God is the absolute creator and sustainer of all life in the world. And he rules it all ultimately. But chapter 2 told us the devil is just a major influence in these three areas of life. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life. That's the playground he runs. Okay, He's in charge of his little playground by God's permission. I also know this. We've said this before. Satan's a devil on a leash. God will only permit him to go so far. And I'm safe and I'm sound with that. And another reason why that's so, turn over to John chapter 17 in his gospel, the high priestly prayer, the Lord's about to go to his passion, and guess who's praying on your behalf, interceding on your behalf? Jesus, the Son of God, to the Father, God the Father. John 17, love this, verse 11 the Lord's praying, and I am no longer in the world, but they, his disciples, are in the world, and I am coming to you, Holy Father. Keep them in your name. Keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. Verse 12, while I was with them, I kept them in your name. That word kept means he guarded them. He kept them safe and sound. Which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost except, except, the son of destruction that the scripture might be fulfilled. Who's the son of perdition or disruption? 
Judas, Judas. And then you skip down to verse 15. The Lord continues, I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you, here it is, keep them from the evil one. Guard them, protect them from that dominant influence of the evil one. And then verse 16, they are not of the world just as I am not of the world. Isn't that a beautiful thing? Isn't that a beautiful prayer to know Jesus is praying for you? Is that a good thing? All right? The Lord keeps or guards his children. But if you catch yourself, listen, this goes back to the warning of verse 19. If you catch yourself loving, treasuring the things of the world, the evil, unrighteous lifestyle among us, thoughts of this world, those are your affections. Listen, if you're making idols, which John talks about, of money, sex, power, popularity, that's a yellow caution flag. It's not good. You want to check that and see where you're at. And if you're not checking it, if you're in that habit of sinning and worldliness and you don't care, then what you should see is a red flag. Red flag, which means you have to check yourself to see if you're in the faith at all. And that's the issue this entire letter has been taking on, head on from the beginning, from chapter 1 to chapter 5 here at the end. Truth, love, and obedience. The hallmarks here. So in a general sense, these are the tests of your faith of basic Christianity. How are you doing with those areas? That's where assurance comes from, folks. Are you passing the tests? So far we know we're safe, we're sound, right? There's one more. One more fact of life for assurance here. And that is being secure. And that's in verses 20 and 21. Look at verse 20. And we know that the Son of God has come and given us understanding so that we may know Him who is true, and we are in Him who is true, in His Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. That's a great verse about security. Being with Christ in fellowship. And you know what's interesting? Again, the Greek language is superior to the English language in this way. There are more words to describe specific things than the English word. For English words, for instance, like the word know. We keep seeing we know, we know, we know. Okay, in English it's one word. So what do you mean by we know? The Greeks were smart. They had two words for that, and they're in this verse. And that is you know intellectually, in your mind. It's translated here as understanding. That is knowledge. You process it in your brain. Then the other kind of know is experiential. You sense it. You feel it. And John uses both words here so that the idea of fellowship knowing Jesus is here and here. It starts in the mind. The Christian faith always starts with truth. What do you know and believe? And then that should filter 18 inches down in your heart where you sense it, you feel it. But it starts here. And that's what he's getting across here. All right? Knowing from personal experience. You can know God intimately. And I love that. And it's in, by the way, the perfect present tense, meaning that your knowledge of God here and here always is ongoing. You can grow. You can get to know God and Christ more and more. And the Lord said that in his prayer in John 17. So, you get to understand something else. Even though the world lies in the power of the evil one, we don't. 
We belong to Christ. He belongs to us. And one of the most amazing things, again, that people don't understand, you can have a close, intimate, personal relationship with God. How many people do you know that struggle with that? That's one of the things when you're witnessing, you want to blow somebody away, tell them, I know God personally. I know God personally. Jesus says in, in other scriptures, I'm his brother and I'm his friend. And God says, I'm his child. All of that is true. Where a lot of people today, they worship false idols or false gods that don't even exist. And then you've got these historical legends and religious leaders they have never met, can never meet or know, much less intimately, right? Muhammad, the Dalai Lama, just to name a couple. They, they can't know those people. We get to know God through Jesus. That's how it works, John 5. And that leads to the last verse in this book itself. We close with the last fact of the new life that we're in, and being secure, and it's actually another warning. It's an interesting way of ending a letter. Look at verse 21. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. That's odd. Paul writes with you know, doxologies to God. Hey, goodbye. I love you. See you next time. John writes, little children, my little children in the faith, you're still growing. Keep yourself from idols. Again, context is king. Why does he write this? Because again, he was writing originally to a church at Ephesus that was dealing with false teaching and idol worship. And so John has been saying throughout the letter of basic Christianity, these are the fundamentals. Don't forget, and this is how you can know who you are. It's just the other side of the coin I flipped for you in verse 20. John just mentioned that believers understand who the true God is, and who Christ is, and that makes anything else that is worship a false idol. So he says, keep, John says, keep, guard yourselves. Literally, it's like, watch out. Don't even get close to an idol. Another modern translation puts it this way. It's pretty good. Keep away from anything that might take God's place in your heart. In fact, the word to keep from can also be translated as running or fleeing from it. That's a strong word. And you know, this has to be explained for a second because we're in a world today, advanced, not too many people, I have a cousin in Georgia, unfortunately, who does, who worships in front of like a little box, stone items, rocks, birds, plants and things, and metal and all of that. That's not so prevalent today. The, the idea is this. An idol, what you want to avoid is something that is not of God that takes up most of your time, talents, treasure, and affection. Especially affection, because if your affections are right, time, talents, and treasure will take care of itself. Media comes to my mind immediately today. We're all guilty of it to a certain degree, but some people are just totally absorbed by social media and phones and clothes and gyms and cultural stuff. All kinds of things. I read about a woman this week who kept her car always in showroom condition in her garage. One night the garage caught on fire and her neighbors had to literally restrain her from rushing into the flames to rescue her car. Okay? That's an idol. Okay? As it exploded, she realized she nearly sacrificed her life for that car. 
became an idol. I have a neighbor across the street, dear guy, his Mustang is like that. You can't get near the thing. That's why we should pray to the fire, our Father, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil or the evil one. That means the Lord would not lead us into falling, succumbing to the temptation that the enemy brings our way. So you have to pray and do in keeping ourselves from evil. Like Colossians 3 says, Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. Hmm. An idol is anything or anyone that takes the place of God in your life. So the big idea about basic Christianity in 1 John is that when you come to Christ by faith alone, by God's grace alone, you are changed, you are born again, and so you have and should therefore be living a transformed life, a new life here, and on your way to eternal life later, and that you can know that you have possessed that eternal life now and forever. Amen? Now, I want to be very helpful here in a closing application, ex exhortation for you. Because I know assurance of salvation is harder for some of you more than others. I touched on how sin can impact that. Bad teaching can impact that. We've talked about that. This letter also can give you the idea there might be some people out there that are they like to call themselves almost Christian, right? Your experience illustrates that, or people you've known. King Agrippa said to Paul in Rome, when Paul was testifying to him in Acts 26, Agrippa said, you almost persuade me to be a Christian. So you should know, no, there it is again, there are many people that do good things. They might even pray, you might see them do that. They'll tell you they've been baptized when. They may be church members. They may have served in ministry. Read their Bibles here and there. They can even tell you when they made a decision to accept in Christ. Pray a prayer, come forward, signed a card, went to the altar. But they are not born again. Worse, there are some... Like you know, and I've read the headline stories over the past few years, pastors and preachers who turned out to be, as John warned in chapter 2 of this letter, apostates. They walked away from the faith they once professed. They defected like Judas. So, now that we're finishing the book of 1 John, I'm going to summarize for you the way you can know as John wants you to know. You are a real, true, born-again, heaven-bound, kingdom citizen of God and disciple of Christ. How many of you would like to know that? Right? I'm going to give you, I could give you a long list, but I'm not going to do that. I'm going to summarize the book and the idea in three categories you've heard me talk about before, which makes it really easy to remember or write a note. They all start with the letter F, and they're all from this letter. You want to know you're a Christian? Check your faith, fruit, and fortitude. Faith, fruit, and fortitude. We'll look at each one real quick. What do I mean by faith? 1 John 5, the first verse. We're going to whip through 1 John here, so stay with me. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ 
has been born of God. Do you believe in Jesus? Faith question. Do you have the truth? Have you passed the test of truth? Chapter 5, verse 12. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. Chapter 4, verse 15. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides or stays in him and he in God. Chapter 2, verse 23. No one who denies the Son, there's the negative flip side, no one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. Okay? So this is where it all starts. This is where it is faith. And by the way, to have faith and to believe, you have to have some discernment. Chapter 4, the first five verses, talk about testing the spirits, knowing error. Here's the second one, fruit. Jesus once said, by their fruits you will what? Know them. Oh, okay. So fruit is the outcome of your faith, right? Being who you are. Your action confirms your attitudes. Christ sanctified us. He made us holy when we were saved. Remember he said, be holy as I am holy. So we're talking about here the test of obedience in fruit. And from this letter, we looked at it the very first phrase of verse 18 of our text. We know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning. It's not the only time you hear something like that and obedience. No. Go to chapter 2, verses 3 and 4. And by this we know that we have come to know Him if, if we keep His commandments. Verse 4. Whoever says, I know Him, but does not keep His commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him or her. Same chapter, verse 29 toward the end. If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. There's more. Chapter 3, verse 6. No one who abides or stays in him keeps on sinning. Verse 24. Whoever keeps his commandments abides in God, and God in him. Chapter 4, verse 13 says the same thing. Are you getting a picture here? What is the first fruit of the Spirit according to Galatians 5 and Paul? The fruit of the Spirit is, well, that's one here. You know that. Chapter 3, verse 14 of this letter. We know, we know that we have passed, listen, out of death into life because we love the brothers, your brothers and sisters in Christ. Whoever does not love abides in death. Verse 15, whoever hates his brother is a murderer. Who? And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. Chapter 4, verse 7, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. Whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Verse 8, anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. Verse 20, if anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar, for he, does not, for he who does not love his brother, whom he has not seen, this sounds familiar, cannot love God whom he has seen. That's a memory verse. What a surprise. So what is your relationship to your church family, to your fellow brothers and sisters in the faith? Do you love them? Even when they're difficult to love, the New Testament makes clear that the church is the priority of our love. 
Paul wrote it, Romans 12 to 16, Galatians 6, it's in James, it's here, etc., etc. Finally, after faith, after fruit, one more and we're done, fortitude. It's not, a, it's not a word you hear a lot today, but I needed to find a, a synonym that started with the letter F so I can keep my alliteration going. And it does not only mean courage, but it does mean perseverance and endurance. And that's what we're talking about. Okay? True regenerate followers of Christ, listen, cannot and will not reject the Lord forever in this life. We are overcomers. People always point to Peter. Oh, he was an ex-Christian, man. I mean, he lost his faith. He denied the Lord three times. He denied the Lord three times, and he repented. And the Lord had him repent three times about how much he loved him having breakfast at the beach in John 21. All right? We will endure. We will display fortitude even when we're persecuted, tried, and suffer if you're a Christian. John writes that, that you will abide. You'll stay with Jesus no matter what if we're the real deal. Look at chapter 5, verse 4. For whoever has been born of God overcomes the world. This is the victory that has overcome the world. Our what? Our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? Faith and fortitude right there, interconnected. That's, now you have another person. You have the apostate, a doctrinal apostate, person who didn't have fortitude. Jesus talked about those people, parable of the sower, Matthew 13, 21. He said, that person has no root in himself but endures for a while. And when tribulation or persecution arise on account of the word, immediately he falls away. You see? They professed Christ but did not possess Christ. And how was that known? How was it known? Through their lack of endurance or fortitude. Might have been a little bit of faith and fruit here and there, but they didn't make it to the finish line. They didn't make it to the end. That's a hallmark of real, true, genuine faith and basic Christianity. John dealt with that. Remember the Antichrist? The apostates in chapter 2 that fell away? What did John say about them? Many Antichrists have come. We know it's the last hour. They went out from us, but they were not of us. But if they had been with us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they are all not of us. You see? Very clear. There's no such thing as ex-Christians. Okay? That's a misnomer. That's a, that's, that's a contradiction in terms. Real Christians don't defect. Fake never was Christians defect and reject the faith and are apostates. John cannot be more clear. It's like the guy that once came to D.L. Moody. And he said he was worried because he didn't feel saved. And Moody said, was Noah safe in the ark? Certainly he was, the guy said. And Moody asked him, well, what made him safe? Was it his feeling or the ark? The guy got the point. How foolish I've been. It is not my feeling. It is Christ who saves. Truth. Faith. So we put a period today. And a letter you can go back to time and time again. We finish 1 John, this great five-chapter letter, 
with the exhortation to examine yourself and see if you're passing the tests of truth, obedience, doctrine, and love, do you exhibit faith, fruit, and fortitude? If you do, congratulations, welcome. You know you are a child of God. And if anyone among you are struggling with any one of these tests, assurance, eternal security, look at what your relationship with Christ is. Do you believe that Christ is the Son of God? Do you have in your life a before and after story, what I call BCAD, right? Are you different since coming to Christ? Are you different than what you used to be? Are you more like Christ today than you were six months ago or a year ago? And do people know that? And are you enduring in tests, trials, and tribulations? Only you can answer those questions. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for the opportunity to have spent the last six months in this book. I've learned so much. It has been so refreshing, so clarifying. It's a wonderful letter. So much truth, so much practical application to make in just five chapters that we have in our Bible. Thank you that we can know through basic Christianity, just understanding it, we can know that we are truly saved without a doubt and have assurance of our salvation and eternal security. And Lord, if anyone is struggling with their assurance of salvation that is in this room or watching us today, listening, I pray that they will return to Christ, to the gospel, seek out confession, repentance of sin, and they will seek to love and follow you and be refreshed in the Spirit. And for those who have failed the test, and they know it, they lack fortitude and fruit because they lack faith. There's no good root in which to bring forth fruit. They would seek that root. They would pray and they would turn to you away, make a commitment and decision in their heart to turn away from sin and their selfishness and turn to Jesus Christ just by faith in who Christ is and what he's done on the cross, paying the price, the sin debt they have to forgive them of their sin if they would just believe. I pray that people today, oh, so needed today, will believe in Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior so that they can have assurance, peace. What a time to know peace now. What a time to be safe and secure in Christ. This is the time. May today be the day of salvation, Lord. We pray these things. And in Jesus' name we said, Amen. Christ Community Church is a God-glorifying, Christ-exalting, and Bible-centered body of believers who love God and love people by making disciples of Jesus Christ. For more information on us and to learn how to give towards our media ministry, please go to our website at www.christcomchurch.org. That's christcomchurch.org. And look for the Giving tab at the top of the homepage.